You're listening to Retail Disrupted, a podcast that explores the latest industry developments and the trends that will shape how we shop in the future. I'm your host, Natalie Berg. This week on Retail Disrupted, we are talking about the customer experience. We're going to explore some of the differences in U.S. and U.K. grocery retailing. We're going to talk about why some friction is actually a good thing. And we're also going to discuss why it's essential to keep investing in the customer experience despite the difficult trading conditions. To do that, I am thrilled to have Richard Hammond on the podcast. Richard is the CEO of Uncrowd, which is a SaaS platform trusted by global retailers and brands to provide the next generation of customer analytics. Richard is also the author of two books. His most recent book, Friction Reward, was published in 2019. And he also wrote Smart Retail, a best-selling retail manual, which is now in its fourth edition and has been translated into 17 languages. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for asking me on. Oh, it's great to have you here. Look, I know you are mega busy and I I really appreciate you taking the time out to be with me today. Before we started recording, I was thinking back to the last time we recorded a podcast together, which was pre-COVID 2019. (laughs) I don't know if you remember. I do, yeah. Yeah, we we met up, I think it was, was it King's Cross? Yeah, yeah. Somewhere in North London. Yep. That's it. That's it. And we recorded the Retail Craft podcast, which was uh, good fun with Ian Jindal of Internet Retailing and Martin Newman and yeah. Maya Knight. So yeah. good fun. But a lot has changed in that time. So I am looking forward to our conversation today. <laughs> so let's let's just start out with uh, some intros, I think. I, I, we have a lot of mutual connections, and I'm sure many of my listeners will know you already, but perhaps you can just share a few words about yourself and what it is that you do. Sure. Well, where I've landed up now is uh, I'm building a, well, we're a scale up now. We've moved on from startup uh, in the customer experience analytics area. Uh, we've done something pretty cool there, and people seem to want it. Uh, but of course, I'm concentrating on my retail vertical, even with that company, because retail is is where I'm from. I've been a retailer for 37 years now um, on the client side for quite a long time of that, operations and marketing and all sorts. And then I ran uh, a retail consultancy for 20 years, which was brilliant. And then some git persuaded me to chop all that in and, uh, and create a, a whole company full of needs and wants and all of those things. But it's actually just brilliant right now. We're, we're seeing this is the this is the most exciting period of retail I can ever recall, both in my 37 years, but also in the last 100. It's an extraordinary market to be in, and it's, I'm full of wonder and woe at it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I share that, that sentiment for sure. Now, today we're going to talk about grocery retailing and specifically some of the differences on either side of the Atlantic, because, you know, we share a common language, but when it comes to supermarkets, it's 
very different. I think more different than people realize. <laughs> and you said that you've recently visited 44 U.S. grocery stores across eight different states, and you've literally gone from coast to coast. So maybe you could just talk us through exactly what you've been up to and yeah. some of the findings of these store visits. So, so we're, we're working with uh, one of the most significant grocers on the planet now. Um, and what that's enabled us to do is something which would be a bit of a luxury in my kind of previous life in consultancy, but has been in a fabulous education where we've done two things. We've, as a, as a leadership team in our business, we've gone and physically assessed 44 different retailers, uh, grocers. So everyone from Walmart to Ralph's to Vons to Food Lion to Publix to Target, Trader Joe's, all those lovely places and many in between. Um, and at the same time, we've had our our actual data process going on in 1,200 of those uh, stores. So we've got data feeds coming from those two. And I, I added it up this morning thinking that uh, we were going to talk about how many states it was. And it's 10 states. I thought it was eight. And it's 10. I'm losing oh, wow. track now. But, <laughs> but also there's that, that extraordinary thing that we talk about separated by a shared language. We see or we've seen over the last three months incredible differences between states and it's the first time I've, I've i've finally understood that thing of the states really are a confederate or oh, confederation is the wrong bloody word but i've been a bit in the south recently um <laughs> it is a federation uh, of of individual cultures and individual ways of looking at the world and even different ways of talking about things and different ways of displaying fruit and veg for goodness sake but it's been incredibly instructive to see the differences between this marketplace and Europe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd agree with that because it's such a fragmented market. I mean, I've obviously lived over here in the UK for nearly 20 years now, but I grew up in Connecticut and it was stop and shop. I mean, stop and shop Walmart. I never even heard of Vons and Ralph's and Kroger, ironically, yeah. until I moved to London and started studying <laughs> these yeah. supermarkets. So yeah. it is, uh, it's very, very localized. Well, that, now, that, that extreme kind of fragmentation of the market really, as a Brit, takes you by surprise. So one of the supermarkets we've been looking at is Food Lion. And Food Lion are concentrated around uh, Georgia. And Food Lion is a $40 billion company that nobody's ever heard of. And then you look at the, into the logo, and the lion is a Hal Delahaye's lion. It used to belong to them, and it's been left behind that. And it's a really good business, really interesting business. And you kind of go, how, how, how is that? You know, you compare that to the UK market, where you know you've got Tesco's at sixty odd billion pounds, and then you're very quickly down to a, a reductive kind of, uh, you know, a few pennies here and there, and it's. That's the wonder of the U.S. market for me, not just as a supplier to the U.S. market, but as a customer, the variety and character that still remains. People, you know, people talk about uh, identical America and identical Britain. I, I would argue that America has far more individuality still, far more variety than, than we have here by quite some distance. And it's lovely to celebrate that. Mm, that's interesting. And I think having lived here for as long as I have, one of my first impressions when I first moved here a gazillion years ago <laughs> was just how competitive the market was and how yeah. innovative it was. Because as you say, there are these big four supermarkets, plus now the discounters, which are major players in their own right. In fact, Aldi is number four. Yeah. But because the, there's so much competition, because you've got such a 
um, such population density as well. You know, yeah. where is you know sixty plus million people on a small island. It it means that retailers have had to be innovative and keep, you know, keep, um, yeah, keep competing with each other and raising the bar in terms of the customer experience. Whereas I don't know. Do you think? Without that competition in the U.S., I mean, don't get me wrong. There's competition. You've got Amazon moving into grocery. You've got the WalMarts of the world, the Targets, and there's definitely competitive threats. But yeah. it is different, isn't it? Yeah, and, and and this has been one of the questions that we've been trying to to resolve in in this process generally is that on the one hand, you have and there's there's a way I'd characterize the U.K. supermarkets having now looked at them in so much detail in the light of another marketplace you can suddenly see in the UK supermarkets that they've been driven by professional management for 50 years. Um, you know, I've got Jack Cohen's wonderful biography uh, to the side of, of me here, Pilot High and Sell It Cheap. And and really, as soon as, as Jack's influence started to be overtaken by the Ian McLaurin's and the, you know, the geniuses like that at places like, like Tesco's, um, and the, the Sainsbury's family started to, to in themselves, professionalise towards the end of their running of, J- of Jay Sainsbury's, you've seen those businesses become dominated by a, a focus on standards and efficiency and getting the, the right product on the right shelf at the right time with very little experimentation. You know, of course, the UK market is famous for uh, new creators of foodstuffs, of you know, particularly independent FMCG, how difficult it is to even be seen by a buyer for really good reasons in the UK. I mean, goodness me. Uh, and one of our team was the buyer of tea bags at Tesco's, at, at Tesco's Sainsbury's. One of the two, it's you know merging to one. And you know, Chris talked about how every single day he would be bombarded by suppliers wanting to do something different with tea, and how it becomes impossible to focus on it. So you get this this focus on efficiency and standards that starts to become really rather dry. And really, rather uninspirational, and it ends with people like Dave Lewis at Tesco's very reasonably removing the bulk of deli counters and uh, some of those more performative elements of the experience. And he was right to do it in the UK marketplace. He, you know, again, our data back that up. You can prove. Do you think? Oh yeah, totally. Um, we know from a couple of reasons. We, uh, our, our mole at another one of the supermarkets, quietly told us that they'd done exactly this in 20 test stores a year previously and how on the one hand how our analysis actually matched their their real numbers but also how little it affected their their their, their trade for a gigantic cost reduction payoff and wow, so that's that's surprising to me sorry to interrupt but i'm oh, i'm surprised and, by that because and that I, was that was really interesting for i was the same as you so we had we've, we've got a very similar kind of bird's eye perspective on the uk re- retail market we looked down down. We look across. We look under. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we look at it with a with an analyst's eye, thinking about the the total experience. And so, when we did the data on that, using we, we've got this tool that basically looks at observable reality rather than customer feedback. So there's no subjective opinion. It's the facts. And so here was me very biased because I had the same view as you, which is, well, that's you're taking away something that Aldi can't do. Exactly. Uh, you're yeah. definitely upsetting a certain group of customer stories that are, that, that are traditionally coming into your businesses, it doesn't seem very compatible with uh, the finest part of your presentation. Um, so I ran the numbers almost in a huff, and we were doing a bit of work with Tesco's Labs at the time. And the numbers said, no, no, actually, there are a couple of customer stories that you'll now lose, 
but it won't. Uh, what you're doing won't stop the people who are who are moving away to uh, Aldi from moving away. It won't stop your loss to the discounters, but it will give you millions of pounds to spend on reducing prices and defending that that leaky tap from that that move away. And I was shocked by that. It made total commercial sense. But it, it feeds into the point that you were making earlier on, which is that because that characterizes our market, our market in the UK is hyper competitive, exactly as you say, the density of population, the efficiency of the of the experience, that contrasts markedly with the bulk of the American market, which is about grocers that were run by entrepreneurs for a very long time, often still bearing their name. Um, you know, the Kroger company, for example, wears its heritage really deep in the way that it wants to give incredibly friendly and abundant and, you know, fresh experiences to, to people. The same thing with with even a retailers like, like Vons, which might have a slightly dour presentation. They're all about the communities they serve. They're all about being individual in their, their corner of California. Uh, Foodline, too, we, we, we saw it there. But um, so you see these businesses that have been run by entrepreneurs, and they still wear that creativity and fun and depth of experience on their on their, their shoulders. They, and they also benefit from this extraordinary thing, which was a big shock to me, that you'll never walk into an American grocery store that's busy. They just aren't <laughs> because there's so many of them, and land is so cheap, and the, the footprint is so big. Even though American grocery so grocery stores tend to have much narrower aisles, which is a that was a mind blower for me. Clearly, somebody in the UK at some point has said an aisle is one trolley on one side, one trolley on the other side, <laughs> and you can get a trolley down the middle. Every store we visited was two trolleys wide and no more. We we actually have our our, our data capture people doing. I'm doing a mime here on a podcast where they put their <laughs> arms out and if they can just about touch each side of the aisle with their fingers, that's a standard US aisle. Blew my mind. Yeah, um, interesting. But the presentation is, is so much so much more creative and and inventive. And then you start to look at the markets that they're serving, and those are markets where novelty and innovation are incredibly important. Uh, that, that's how you end up with a flavor that's called bold, for goodness sake. What is bold? What what am I eating if something is is it's cheesy over here and I've got paprika over here and I've got I've got bacon here and I've got bold. The heck is that? Um but you can see that in the way those stores are presented. And and the thing that I found most surprising is they're not like British uh, grocery stores at all. They're like French stores. They feel like Carrefour. Mm. They feel like even Clerk. Smaller in terms of the navigable space, much bigger footprints, but but full of wonder and creation and wonderfully presented, exciting new things, as well as all the dependables. Yeah, yeah, that's true because the French supermarkets are are big on perishables and and just that whole appearance of freshness, which I have to say I do miss. Uh, I, you know, my British husband loves visiting my U.S. family because yeah. the only time he doesn't mind going grocery shopping because, as you say, <laughs> it's it's always quiet. <laughs> yeah, I, it's not I'm like going to Sainsburys, our local Sainsburys at you know six o'clock <laughs> on a Friday. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, it is it is funny the differences, but. I guess another thing to call out here is that British supermarkets, British retailers generally, haven't had much luck in cracking the U.S. market. Mm. And Tesco's fresh and easy flop was probably the the you know most well documented. 
Um, I remember visiting Fresh and Easy when it first launched, and I I just, I didn't get it. As an American shopper, as a retail analyst, as someone who's lived in the UK for as long as I have, I just thought Americans aren't going to get this. It's clinical. It's, there's way too much self-checkout for the time. Maybe that would work now as we're all kind of getting more comfortable with automation. And all the packaged fruit and vegetables, which make total sense here in the UK. I mean, Americans just like to pick up their their fruit and veg and test it out before they buy it. So there were so many things. And, you know, we don't need to pick on Tesco too much. But I'm just (laughs) curious to get your thoughts. Why why do you think uh, British supermarkets haven't been able to crack the US market? Well, there's there's a couple of interesting things. While we were over there this last time, I I visited a British pal who's very senior at uh, Home Depot. I'm saying it right, Depot. And well done, well done. <laughs> um, but he told me, no, say Depot or else people will start staring at us in the canteen. Um, <laughs> and of course, Home Depot is this incredible business, a behemoth. And he talked a lot about that that kind of what makes an American business tick and what what challenges you as a, as a British exec entering. And he's been there 20 years now. Um, and he was talking about how how hard it is to learn what politeness really means in a US business context. So, and, and we're starting to learn that now is that, that Americans are actually, it's funny, isn't it? We, we Brits have this this odd, uh, I say we Brits, I'm the Brit, you're an honorary Brit right now. Um, <laughs> I'm dual. <laughs> <laughs> dual. We, we Brits are, our stereotype is of these incredibly polite, quiet, shy uh, people in bowler hats. And at one point last month, when I said cheerio to somebody in in, uh, in Iowa, they almost melted on the floor. It was just <laughs> wonderful. Um, they didn't and, point you to uh, aisle five for the cereal, did they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but but it, it, we're seen as that. And, and actually, in business, it's not true. We're way more direct than Americans with each other. We're way more uh, upfront. We're way more specific about criticism. Whereas you watch Americans working with each other, and, and we've been based in our, our particular clients' offices for all that time, so we've really been in the in the centre of, of really being, you know, what it's like to to be part of that. Um, and you'll see people not say, "I think that's wrong." You'll say, "I think that's fabulous." What I'd like to do to build on that is now say the exact opposite of the thing you've just said, um, which which is wonderful. But what it kind of what it does is it means that. Brits that go into that American marketplace and try to transplant the the British culture directly and immediately into it will always fail because you have to have a respect for the way that those people do business. And it differs. You know, California, it's a bit different again. New York, it's very different. You know, New York is like its own country in terms of, mm. of culture and, and, and working practices. But we saw this uh, with um, a British business that are doing very well in the US at the moment, JD Sports. And one of the things JD Sports have done with the businesses that they've uh, bought and uh, worked with there is they haven't thrown out the existing management. They haven't thrown out the entrepreneurs. They haven't given people a payoff and a goodbye. They've worked with them. They've given them a share of that new business so that people are still directly uh, involved in it. And they've said, look, we know our, we know Athleisure. We know the UK. We, we're learning really a lot about Europe. We're discovering things about other marketplaces, but you're the experts here. We want you to be the part of leading the guidance for how we do it in this place. And, and, you know, it's been written about, so we're not giving anything away. Tesco's came into that marketplace and essentially said, we know better. Mm. And they didn't, and we don't. Uh, You Mm. have to listen. You have to watch the local market and understand it and integrate yourself with it. 
And I think that was, again, I think what that was down to is, is because we are so much better in the UK grocery market at standards and execution, we think that's what's most important. It really isn't. You can see it isn't. And our data is proving that it's not. Anyway, that's, that's a separate thing. We've done a million observation points in that marketplace over the last quarter. And it tells a story of, of delight and excitement and discovery. But here's the thing that you, you, you mentioned right at the beginning that's so interesting for me is, and yet Amazon as, a, as an online retailer, the, the, the physical iteration is slightly different. The physical iteration of Amazon is, is really quite nice in terms of experience and discovery and all those things. But the, the online experience of food shopping at Amazon is about as crappy as it gets. And I, I, the, the, a shock for me was I love Aldi. I think Aldi's a brilliant business, and I love it in the UK. We, we shop it all the time. Their meat is amazing. Their detergent is low-cost and easy to buy, all that lovely stuff. And I was almost shocked that it's exactly the same format in the US, you know, that it's just the footprint, everything. Mm. And on the face of it, you walk out of a Kroger or a Publix or a Whole Foods and you walk into an Aldi and you go, this is horrible. This, this, is, this is just horrible. And yet it's working fabulously well. And so there's a, there's a question to be resolved about why a, an efficiency-dominated business that's all about turning that efficiency into lower prices is able to, to operate so effectively in that market. And it's not just the inflation crisis mm. uh, in the US because it's been doing this now for, for a number of years. And, and of course, Amazon is, you know, your, your history with Amazon, is it, I, could not, I always forget how old the bloody thing is, but it's been selling food now for plenty of, of years and doing so at an extremely high level of success. So there's a question to be answered then. I don't know the answer to this yet. And it's one of the intriguing things that we're going to hunt down mm. over the next six months with our clients there is just why are those hyper-efficiency, low-price, easy shop experiences capturing such a big share of, of the marketplace? Do you think it's because, I think in grocery retailing, it comes down to value or convenience, sometimes both, right? But Aldi does value pretty much better than anyone. Amazon does convenience pretty much better than anyone. And also when you think about value retailers becoming more convenient, as in adding more products to their assortment, which Aldi and Little have done in, in recent years, and also physically becoming more convenient with you know, better locations, more self-checkouts, kind of while yeah. the likes of Sainsbury's and the big supermarkets are taking cost out of the business by closing counters. You've got Aldi actually adding a little bit of cost in because they're recognizing, actually, this is a good opportunity to acquire new customers. So yeah. I don't know. There's a lot going on there, I think. It's interesting. It's going to be fascinating to unpack it. I mean, I think one of the things that we were wondering, and I don't know if this is right, but but again, when, when you start to spend a bit more time there, you, you suddenly go... Oh, there's no convenience stores here. There's, 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 or there's, you know, New York's got its bodegas, um, but Cincinnati, for example, where we spent a lot of time over the last last three months, um, downtown Cincinnati has one mini mart on the edge, the entire downtown area, but it has a whole bunch of uh, well, um, oh, I've suddenly forgotten the bloody uh, Walgreens. Has mm -hmm. a bunch of Walgreens, which are that are essentially convenience they are stores, convenience that also stores. sell you, yeah. um, you know, blood pressure medicine, albeit <laughs> in, in the wrong part of the store. But and so you start looking at it and going, oh, actually, the convenience store there is 
that there are 15 big supermarkets within a short drive from my house, no matter where I live. Um, and I wonder if Aldi is almost fulfilling the function of the top-up shop convenience store here. You know, the, and when you we, we've, one of the things you do when you're, you're doing these assessments is you very subtly and without looking like you're a, a, a criminal, particularly in an unarmed nation, um, <laughs> you, you kind of look into people's trolleys and baskets see, trying to see what their combinations are. And there was a lot of convenience-looking baskets. So mm. um, staples, milk, egg, uh, eggs, bacon, and one big protein or one ready meal or a bunch of snacks and some some bottles of pop it was you could see a lot of that very consistently and very few large baskets so i'm wondering if aldi has performed but i don't know whether that's true or not we've got to actually do some work on that mm. it might be that it might be that one of the outputs from our piece of work is actually to talk about the lack of convenience formats in the grocery marketplace and maybe that's a you know maybe if you are a uh, a Kroger's or a Target or whatever it is that maybe you 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 spin out the convenience part of your offer and put it as a standalone, particularly given that land is like five p no matter whether that wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting, and it's also sparked a thought, which is what we're seeing with Aldi here in the UK, as in they during COVID, like everyone, you know, tried to get online, realized the economics don't stack up, but actually click and collect is a good halfway house. Yeah. But it costs nearly five pounds for the service. And you think the average Aldi shopper isn't going to fork out five pounds for the pleasure of clicking and collecting. So they're now quietly rolling that back. I spoke to a journalist at Witch um, a couple weeks ago about it. And I I just think, again, it's about figuring out the 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 economics of it all and whether yeah. there is genuine customer demand customer demand and where do you play what's your purpose are you a value retailer or are, yeah. do you want how tempting is it to move into that convenience space well i can imagine pretty yeah. tempting but ultimately you've got to stick to you know what you do well well it's really interesting that one because uh, we we do know from the inside the economics of what's happening there and i i can't even hint at what's actually going on and it's it's fascinating the real reason for it but um oh yeah uh florian will will beat me with a stick and so I can't, <laughs> fair enough we'll have I can't to anything, keep us it, guessing it's, it's a typically it's uh, uh, the hint i'll give you is it's not a million miles away from the way amazon look at innovation no not even innovation the way that amazon look at, uh, at expanding their marketplace it's that kind of exercise okay interesting interesting okay just to switch gears a little bit um I think a lot of retailers right now are in firefighting mode. And I mean, they have been for a while, right? Because you've got disruption coming from all angles. Just this morning here in the UK, we've heard that a million households will see a 500 pound increase in their monthly mortgage payments. I mean, that's going to that's gonna hurt a lot of people. It's going to really put a dent in uh, our ability to spend. So I think for a lot of people, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And as much as retailers like to say that the customer experience is critical to their success, the reality is that for some, this is going to get put to the back burner as they as things get tough and they continue to try to put out these fires. So what's your take on this, Richard? What do you think the risk is of deprioritizing customer experience in this yeah. climate? There is a definite risk. And, and the risk is in a number of areas. First of all, is as a, as a stats nerd and as a data nerd, you start to unpack some of those numbers. So a million households in the UK are going to be hit by £500 raises. There are 25 million households in the UK, or 26 million now. 
So already we're a tiny fraction of overall households. Now, it would, be, it would be crass to argue that those other 24 million haven't experienced price rises. They have, although some of those are being mitigated even further now, particularly the energy price rises mm-hmm. that we've seen. Um, that, that million households, is a, even there, is a subset of the mortgage holding households in the UK that don't have fixed mortgages or that have fixed mortgages that, that don't go into the next couple of years. So there's this there's a big headline. And the second thing to remember, and this is something that, that, that again, at my age, you, you've been, we've been through so many recessions. I, none of them are my fault, but I, I remember them all <laughs> the way through from 1988 onwards. And an extraordinary thing happens in every recession, which is that if somebody is experiencing £500 a month increases in their mortgages, they say, we're not buying a car this year. We can't afford to go on holiday this year. And then they notice that there's a bit more money in their pocket than they thought at the end of the month because those big purchases, we're not doing the extension, we're not putting a conservatory on, we're not getting a patio set, those things. Mm-hmm. And that's when the treats start to increase. And we've this isn't this isn't anecdote, this is just true. It's in the data. And so, you know, we've seen, for example, in grocery, overall spends hold up. But the mix of those spends change. So quite a lot of substitution to private brands. And again, that's a surprise, UK versus US. We are far better at private brands than any mm. of the US retailers. Uh, so if I say we, like I've been part of it, it's not me. <laughs> um, but UK Grocery is brilliant at that kind of thing and has been for a long time. And, and private label penetration is now tipped over the 50% mark here, yeah. which feels pretty significant. So Yeah, it, it does. And it's it, yeah, there's a couple of things that have driven that is not only is it uh, is it about the the money it's about aldi having persuaded people middle class people that private label can be high quality and you don't need that many articles and blind testings to establish that actually this thing that stays in my cupboard and that nobody ever sees which is actually quite nicely packaged as it is is good value one of those, we, we, one of the private labels that is really interesting to watch in the US is Whole Foods, their Whole Foods 365 private label. Fabulous value, really, really competitively priced. And we've done a, a price assessment across um, 18 different brands coming around, there's loads. And 365 comes out really competitive. But the, the the share of the volume, the share of volume for three six five is still pretty pitiful, almost to the point where you think this is this is offered as a signifier, you know, it's a signal mm. giver to make people feel that the Whole Foods isn't as expensive as it is. And other data that, that's been shared with us shows that that hasn't worked. Um, but that that uh, you know, that's, an, that's an, a thing over time. So yeah, people have been switching baskets to answer your question directly. People are switching baskets; they're changing the structure within them. But we're seeing basics go to private label and the treat items become more prevalent. And, you know, it's it's fascinating to see how the difference between the storytelling around our economy and the reality of the economy for those of us who live it. And I'm lucky to, to come from a family where we are of extremes. My father came from uh, fallen wealth. So he didn't have any bloody money when uh, when he married mum, but he came from offices and all that kind of stuff. Mum's from a council estate. And so my family is is across both of those things. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel lucky to, to to be aware of my circumstance being different from other people's mm. uh, because I'm directly within that, within within my family. And I think 
I think the danger we have, and we as retail experts, and I, I you know, I know a lot of your listeners are, are like us too. Mm-hmm. I think we have a duty, a duty to help support positive sentiment in our marketplaces because it's all sentiment driven. A million households are facing a horrible time. My daughter's one of them, for example. So her mortgage mm-hmm. is going up because you know she unfortunately doesn't have a fix. So she's one of those million. It's horrible, mm-hmm. um, and you know we'll we'll have to support that. But there are 24 million other households who are not facing this, who've seen their fuel bills start to come down. Mm. And their food food bills will come down too as well in the not too distant future. So there are some silver linings here. It's it's not all doom and gloom. Absolutely. It's it's the reality of life, I think, is what what we are very good at as retailers, is understanding the reality of life. Because, you know, even if our... Even if our sales slip half a percent or one percent or two percent, we are still processing billions of mm. pounds every day as an industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I just want to finish on something you love talking about, Richard, which is friction versus reward. I know you talk about this a lot. And let's see. There's so much to unpack here. Let's start out with. Let's start out with the news. Uh, so it's not hot off the press news, but relatively recently, Sainsbury's has started putting gates at their self-checkouts. So yeah. now shoppers actually have to scan their receipt to exit. We know that shrink is a huge problem with self-checkouts and especially in the current climate. Yeah. This has caused a ton of outrage. <laughs> shoppers hate this. Yeah. And I think kind of bigger picture, sometimes when retailers attempt to kill friction, they end up adding more friction. So I'm just thinking, we'll come back to the Sainsbury's example, but I'm thinking Amazon with their turnstiles at the entrance of their checkout free stores. uh, That's caused a lot of friction. It's been a a literal and metaphorical barrier for a lot of shoppers (laughs) who are trying to figure out how do I get into the store? Do I have to download the Amazon app? Where do I tap it? And they've been trying to get around this in various ways, one of which is oh, why don't you just scan your palm? <laughs> Everyone has a hand, right? More or less. Yeah. So it's interesting to see, you know, as, as retailers look to redefine the physical store experience, look to automate uh, the checkout experience and strip checkouts out in some cases. Um, it's a delicate balance though. So I'm curious to get your views. How, how can retailers balance the need to provide a good frictionless experience for the vast majority of those honest shoppers while yeah. still making sure that they've got measures in place to deter theft. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things around that. The first is that you need to be cognizant that friction is okay if it's balanced mm. by reward. And that's the the whole learning for me is that a lot of our, our traditional um, kind of uh, customer experience measurement tools have been based on feedback. And feedback it has all sorts of problems, which we won't go into now because it's far too big a subject. But one of the very simple ones is that it's very good at identifying what look like pain points. So it's very good at identifying gripes and moans. But it's not very good at telling you whether those gripes and moans will make somebody shop elsewhere. And you know the whole point of, of, of insight is to be able to, to understand that, really. Um, and so we don't know right now whether or not those added frictions are likely to cause somebody to change their behaviours. So there's an element of rolling the dice in that, although, you know, again, tools like ours, and I'm sure there are other ways to do it, can measure exactly that, that, that impact. But to think about the effect on, on customers in general. So I discovered this, this thing at Sainsbury's in Kidlington, which uh, 
is where friction reward theory was born uh, over putting a pound in a trolley. But that's a story for another day. Um, I was in the other day and uh, we're actually, <laughs> I was doing an assessment shop as part of a research project. And I bought four pork loins and a bottle of champagne, um, which is not a typical basket. And the, of course, I expected the guy to have to go and take the top off the bottle of bottle of fizz for me because, you know, you can't just walk out with that. And that's accepted. We've got used to that. And he did that. It was great. And then I'm trying to work out how to get out of the self-checkout at that stage. And I, I, I saw a barrier which with an arrow on it. So I thought, well, I'm pushing it and an alarm's going off. And I thought, <laughs> I'm not going to push it anymore because I'm, I'm British and I don't want to make a scene. So I went back into the, the, the area, moved it. It was a customer walking past on the freedom side of it, not in jail like me. <laughs> on the freedom side, he, he shouted over and said, oh, mate, you've, you've, got to, you've got to do your thing with your receipt now uh, to get out. And I was, me? Oh, right, okay. And I went over and did the receipt. And I just thought, so I'm sure experiences like that, it's not just because I'm getting on, um, experiences like that will have been repeated up and down the country. So mm. you have to ask yourself as Sainsbury's, the need I've got to to reduce shrink is sitting on one pot in one column. For the for the... The, the amount of additional deep friction I'm adding to the experience, is there other things in my experience that make that worthwhile? And, and more importantly, relatively to other ways that the customer can fulfill this need, am I concentrating as Sainsbury's on my needs and not the customer's? Is this going to drive that customer to start putting an order in with Amazon Fresh? Is mm. that going to drive the customer to uh, increase their relationship with Ocado? And that's what retailers are just awful at in the, the UK and actually most most places is is looking at those experiences relative to the alternatives. And, you know, it feels like a neat trick. That's exactly what my business is for, because as a retailer, I wanted to understand those things. I put out an academic paper around a way of doing that that's now turned into a real way of doing it and anybody can tap into it. But that 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 amount of friction is is has an impact and so you could say do we go the american route and do we invest a little bit more in our self service tools do we have a greeter who is also an exit random checker and because everybody's doing that that becomes a little bit easier to swallow mm. uh, and I, I one last thing i loved the difference between our self serve and their self serve and this is across dozens of different retail environments We've settled in the UK on uh, essentially you using an electronic policeman who will scream thief at you if you innocently get it wrong. And unexpected, ah, banging out, oh, what are you doing? And oh, my goodness me, what have I done? Have I just, have I piled things up wrongly? And I'm trying and to do it. And there's cameras kind of watching you as well as oh, you're scanning. Goodness. And yeah. Yeah. And other people next to you tutting. And, you know, the people in the queue <laughs> behind you starting to get rebellious. Well, the US versions. And I love this. They are filming you. There's a camera on you. There's a little, often a video of you live in the corner, which has a psychological impact that's that's pretty direct. It says, you know, people can see me do this. And if you put something into your bag that you haven't registered, and for me it was a set of chopsticks the first time I did it, the free chopsticks with the sushi. I put that into the thing. And then it doesn't shout at you. A video comes up. It stops you doing anything. A video comes up, shows you what you just did, and said, did you mean to do that? And I love that subtle difference. It's not saying, you're a villain. How dare you uh, defraud me in my store? It's saying, 
oh, you might have made a little mistake there. I'm sure he didn't mean to. Do you want to rethink that that set of chopsticks? But they also have often live security guards who are not dicks about it, who are friendly and positive and helpful. You know, and in some of these investigations, I took my kids and the number of places you go to where you would just get the security teams being part of the family feel of it, the friendly vibe was quite extraordinary. Although we did also visit a couple of stores in scary parts of Atlanta uh, in in which... Um, I was almost terrified, um, but then uh, you know you've got to do your job, haven't you? That's 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 what we're here for. You've got to take the rough and the smooth. Um, but I mean, on the flip side of that, one of the the other things we did see in the US is how how much extra security there is on products in aisle. Oh, so okay. although you have lock boxes in the UK, I mean, again, that's Sainsbury's example. The the in the uh, pharmacy area, the expensive pharmaceuticals are in lockboxes and the perfumes and things are in lockboxes there and this this uh, it's hard not to cry about it um female sanitary products uh, baby's milk uh the the stuff of everyday life is what's being locked down because wow. people are desperate that's sad um, you know that desperation is is what's driving people to steal those things and and that you know i don't want to end on a downer because you know <laughs> how, how sad would that be but i think i think the, the last thing that's worth saying is in defense of all retailers uk us everywhere one of the reasons we're having to increase our security and one of the reasons we're having to do things which are very high friction like that is particularly in the uk successive governments have seen shoplifting as a minor crime as not mm. terribly important as you know if it's under 200 pounds it's not even prosecute let's just make that a let's make that a thing and let's just you know and it's not a victimless crime there are tens of thousands of people who depend their livelihood because on retail they work in that that's where that's where their source of self-respect comes from that's where their source of fulfillment and achievement comes from they're being directly stolen from when we create an environment that says it's fine to do that so mm. I, I want to finish on that defense of uh, of our marketplace it needs to be a an integrated thing yeah yeah absolutely well lots of food for thought there richard thank you so much for joining me on the podcast it's been a pleasure to chat with you as always and hopefully i can convince you to come back on sometime brilliant really enjoyed it and thank you for having me much appreciated thank you for listening to retail disrupted if you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the podcast, please leave a rating or review or share it with others. It really makes a difference. 